man of mystery, a voice crying in the wilderness. Sorry to build you up and then let you down. As I think has previously been explained to you, the Christian year, according to tradition, commences on the first Sunday of Advent, which was, of course, last week. Commences a period of anticipation as well as preparation. And each year, one of the Gospels is the major focus of the lectionary, and so we have recently moved from a focus on Luke's Gospel to that of Matthew. Now, the second Sunday of Advent is given over to John the Baptist, John the Baptist sorry, which is understandable when we're on Luke's Gospel, because that contains the story of John's birth a short time before that of Jesus. But personally, I have never quite grasped in over 40 years of theological study the logic of using the the passage from Matthew chapter 3, which we read. I don't, don't see the point in using it at this particular time of the year because come the new year, when we begin to consider Jesus' ministry, we'll find this sort of story recurring. The ministry of John the Baptist preceded that of Jesus. So forgive me this morning if I stray just a little from what is meant to be the main focus of passage, uh, of that passage, which has a lot to do about judgment, because I'm, I'm not going that way at all this morning. Uh, I wanted to bring some good news, um, so I'm going to stray. Um, I want to spend a bit more time looking at the man known as John the Baptist. And that means making some reference to Luke's gospel, which is, of course, the one that gives the detail, such as we know it, of his birth and background. Luke tells us that his father was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Now, to understand what that means would take an awful lot of explaining, believe me. But it basically goes back to Davidic times, and arrangements made then for the ministry of the temple. To try and cut a long story short, there were 24 divisions in the priesthood, each ministering for two weeks in what was basically a lunar calendar, with changeover at the new moon and the full moon. And the order or division of Abijah was allotted the eighth group in the cycle. Zechariah was drawn by lot from amongst a large priestly group for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense in the temple. Now, of course, the Jewish calendar doesn't work completely in sync with our solar calendar as illustrated up there. 
So we cannot forbear determine precisely when Zechariah was ministering the temple. And in any case, we are told that it was sometime after he returned home from his priestly duties in Jerusalem that his wife Elizabeth fell pregnant. But whether or not that was days, weeks, or months, we have no way of determining. All we do know from Luke chapter 1 verse 26 is that Elizabeth was in the sixth month of her pregnancy with John when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she too was to give birth to a son who was to be named Jesus. It's fair to say then that John was probably about six months older than Jesus. But did they know each other? And what was their relationship? Well, let me try and answer or at least tackle the last of these two first. It has traditionally been thought that Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. For that's how John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, chose to translate the Greek word sagenis. But the word actually means kinswoman. It doesn't mean cousin at all. Hebrew has no such word. So it just means kinswoman or relative, and so we cannot be precise about this. Elizabeth also seems to have been a good bit older than Mary, perhaps at the very end of her childbearing years, whilst Mary was almost certainly a teenager. One tradition suggests that Elizabeth was in fact her aunt, not her cousin, in which case John the Baptist was Mary's cousin. But that cannot be substantiated from any unquestionable source. All that is clear is that he was a near relative. It's also been suggested that by the time she was pregnant, Mary's mother was dead. And that was why she went to see Elizabeth as her next closest female relative. But the simple truth of the matter is that the Bible is silent on all of this. Except to say that Elizabeth was certainly close enough for Mary to make her lengthy journey to confide in her the message that she had received from the angel Gabriel. Now as to the question of whether Jesus and John knew each other as opposed to knowing of each other, again we cannot know this with any certainty. For whilst Elizabeth lived in an unspecified town in the hill country of Judea, that's the bit circled down the bottom, or well it's a funny looking circle but you know what I mean, the shape. Um, but whether or not that was possible, because obviously Mary was up, up north in, in Nazareth. It's quite a distance, actually. Um, so it's difficult to say whether they would have met up, and even if they did, it was not likely to be, to be you know, that often because of the distances and difficulties of travelling at that time. But if there were any meetings, they are not recorded 
as I say, there would be likely to be few in any case. The only encounter we actually know of is when John received Jesus at the Jordan. When John said to him, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Which implies some sort of recognition on John's part. But on the other hand, there is strong affirmation that it took the descent of the Holy Spirit to confirm Jesus' identity to him. And John later sent the disciples to ask Jesus whether he or not he was the one that John had expected, or should he go looking for another? So there's a bit of tension there. Indeed, in John's gospel, the Baptist is recorded as saying emphatically, I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And so it must remain something of an open question as to whether or not they even knew one another in childhood, despite the familial connection. I chose as my theme for today, man of mystery. For in truth, we don't really know all that much about John before he appears on the banks of the Jordan preaching his message of judgment and the need for repentance. A message symbolized by ritual washing. What inspired them to preach this message? What were the influences on John's life? Again, to some extent, the Bible is silent. But mainly based on Luke chapter 1, verse 80, which says that he lived in the desert until he appeared at the Jordan, there has been scholarly speculation to suggest that John probably had links to the Essene community, most famous for its ascetic settlement at Qumran, near the Dead Sea. Very arid, dry place on the west bank of the Jordan, a site that Jess and I had a privilege to visit the best part of 30 years ago. This group were also the group responsible for compiling, or at least preserving, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were first found in caves and desert cliffs by three Bedouin shepherd boys in 1946. Until then, nobody really bothered too much about the Essenes. They were mentioned as a sect in Judaism by a few ancient writers and by the first century Jewish historian Josephus. But not very much was known about them at all until links began to be made with Quran sparking excavations of both the cave cliffs and the ancient ruins not far off. As a result, much more is known than ever before about this sect of Judaism, which Josephus identified as being the third most influential sect in Judaism, after the Sadducees and the Pharisees, even though they are never directly mentioned in the New Testament, or the Gospels particularly. Joseph, Josephus described these people as rejecting pleasures as an evil 
and esteeming conquest over our passions as a virtue. Many of them, perhaps mainly those who resided at Qumran, adopted an ascetic lifestyle and practiced celibacy of sorts. I suppose we might call it a sort of monasticism. But there were many others as well who followed their teaching whilst not quite living as they did, instead living ordinary lives in the towns and villages throughout Palestine. But given the ascetics in particular who lived in the desert community and practiced ritual washing, well, that has led a lot of scholars to speculate that John the Baptist may originally have been one of them. That's a ritual bath at Qumran. And even if he wasn't actually one of them, there's no doubt in most scholars' minds that he was certainly influenced by the asceticism and the teaching, the purity doctrine of that particular community. Was he brought up amongst them? If, as is thought, his parents were indeed dead by the time he was a teenager? Is that why Luke says he lived in the desert? But as I said, this is all pretty speculative. For all we know for sure is that John suddenly appeared out of the, de of the desert as if from nowhere, describing himself in the words of the prophet Isaiah as a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Of considerable interest to those who first encountered him and to the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, though not mentioned by Luke and John, was his strange appearance. Let me quote directly from Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, so I can't be said to have completely ignored that passage of Scripture. Matthew writes, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Also adding, his food was locusts and wild honey. Well, what is significant about that? Well, while the words John himself quotes are from the prophet Isaiah, the description of his appearance tallies with the speculations of the people of the time that he was Elijah reincarnated, mention of which is made in Mark chapter 6, verse 15. The reason why some thought like this can be found partly in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, where the king's messengers describe Elijah as having a hairy garment and a leather belt around his waist. But also in the tradition of the Jews based on the prophet Malachi, which Jesus later discussed with some of his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration after the mysterious appearance of Elijah along with Moses. For Malachi, in promising about the day of judgment, spoke of God sending the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now those who thought that way 
were certainly amongst a greater number who desired the coming of the Messiah. And there can be no doubt whatsoever that the early Christians certainly came to think that way. For again, in the account of the transfiguration of Jesus, after the discussion Jesus has with the disciples concerning Elijah's coming, Matthew states emphatically, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So this is no invention of the Christian church. This is the testimony of Jesus himself, that in a sense, John the Baptist was indeed. If not the prophet Elijah, then one after the manner of the prophet Elijah, heralding the way. In both the looked narrative concerning John the Baptist's birth and in all four Gospels, John is unquestionably depicted as the forerunner of Jesus, the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And so this teaching of Scripture is significant in identifying the, or establishing the identity and the authenticity indeed of the one who we best know as Jesus of Nazareth but for whom the early Jewish converts knew as Jesus the Messiah, of which, of course, Jesus Christ is but the Latin equivalent. So John paves the way and points the way, as he did literally, according to John the Evangelist's account, points the way deliberately towards Jesus of Nazareth as both the one whose laces he was unworthy to untie or to carry sandals as the, the translation we read this morning puts it. That and as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that sense, John is no mere secondary character in the Bible. Even though he himself said of Jesus, he must become greater I must become less. That's a catchy saying, much quoted. But it can be better and more fully understood when set in context with a fuller quote. For what John said, as recorded in John's Gospel, is he must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist was clearly the first person to recognize Jesus in adulthood as who, or who he really was. Even if he later expressed some doubt for a moment whilst he was locked up in prison. Or just think of these three sets of recorded words that come from the mouth of John. And I want them to stick with us as we journey through Advent to the birth at Bethlehem. Because these are really important testimonies. I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But after me comes one who is more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I saw the Holy Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Is there any room for doubt concerning John's testimony and his insight? He was not like the secularists who accept Jesus as a righteous teacher but reject his divinity. He was not like later Islamic scholars who recognize Jesus as God's second last prophet and even mark his special birth but reject his death on the cross. He was not like so many liberal preachers who teach that Jesus died of our sins, but not for our sins, and cheap grace without repentance and salvation. No, it was John who taught the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like the one whom he recognized as greater than he, also called for sinners to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand.